Creighton University students find success through leading undergraduate, graduate, and professional programs. Nationally ranked research and internship opportunities and a global network of alumni prepare Creighton Blue Jays for lifelong success. Learn more at Creighton.edu. At Creighton University, students start a successful and meaningful future. Imagine doing original research with a renowned professor or interning at a Fortune 500 company. The possibilities are endless as a Creighton Blue Jay. Learn more at Creighton.edu. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, Talk About Infertility. Today, we're going to be talking about coping with miscarriages and stillbirth. Uh, October is National Pregnancy Loss Awareness Month, uh, and in honor of that, we're trying to bring more awareness to the concept of, of, of miscarriage and stillbirth, and, and in particular, how you cope with them. Um, such an important topic. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. This is very important. Whatever decisions you make today doesn't lock you in. You could change your mind tomorrow or the next day or next month. Allow yourself to feel what you feel and decide what you decide at any, at any given moment. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm your host and the director of Creating a Family. You can find us and all of our resources online at creatingafamily.com. Org. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For women who have been undergoing fertility treatments and are still struggling to conceive, daily scenarios and interactions can take their toll, that's to put it mildly, on their emotional health. There is an app out there, and I can say that about a lot of things, there's an app out there to take care of it. Well, there is an app. It's called Ferticom, and it is, it's for your phone or for your uh, iPad. And it was developed by reproductive psychologists Dr. Ali Domar and Dr. Elizabeth Grill. They have been guests not infrequently on this show, uh, and uh, they designed the app specifically to help women address the many challenging emotional life situations that arrive when you are in uh, infertility treatment or just trying, struggling to conceive. They do use things like cognitive behavioral and relaxation techniques, and they, they address more than 500 different coping options. To get more information, you can go to the website, ferticomapp.com, ferticomapp.com, and we appreciate them for their support. Today, we're going to be talking about coping with miscarriage and stillbirth. We'll be talking with Lori Leo. She is the author of after Miscarriage, A Journey to Healing. We'll also be talking with Reva Judas. She is founder of Naham Comfort, a nonprofit providing crisis intervention, guidance, and support for infancy and pregnancy loss. And Ellen Krishner, she is the director of programming at Naham Comfort. Welcome, Lori, uh, Reva, and Ellen to Creating a Family. We are so glad to have you today to talk about this topic. Before we jump in and begin, I want to uh, lay the groundwork with some terminology because there's a lot of terminology that is used. Some of it medical, some of it uh, in the um, you know Dr. Google, and some of it's just what we talk about when we're talking with our friends. Some of the terminology is so. Let's get it all straight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Both some of the t- the terms we'll hear are stillbirth, miscarriage, spontaneous abortion, pregnancy loss, fetal demise. So both stillbirth and miscarriage are types of pregnancy loss or fetal demise. Both pregnancy loss and fetal demise are kind of the general terms that are used. But they differ on when the loss occurs. A miscarriage, which is sometimes called almost exclusively by the medical professionals, spontaneous abortion. A miscarriage is when the baby dies before the 20th week of pregnancy. And a stillbirth is the death of the baby after the 20th week of pregnancy, but before delivery usually. All right, so let's now talk about how common they are. Um, Lori, can you start us off by uh, how common are miscarriages? And and I I guess I don't know if there's statistics worldwide, but anyway, give us at least the U.S. stats. Sure. The U.S. statistics are about... Uh, one in four pregnancies will end in miscarriage. 
And that's and is that recognized pregnancies? Because a lot of times people are not even uh, women are not even aware they're pregnant, and they are maybe a few days late, and they have a, a slightly heavier period. Does that do you know if that stat includes recognized pregnancies, or is it just all pregnancies? No, I believe that is all pregnancies. Okay, all right. And Ellen, can you talk to us about stillbirths? How common are stillbirths? So there's about twenty six thousand stillbirths. Uh, per year in the United States, it's quite yeah, a large and I, number. Yeah, it is. And I, uh, uh, do you happen to know if most stillbirths occur before labor or are during labor, um, and so and when a birth is impending? No, that, that's pretty much before labor. That's um, that you before um, the, the the term has come. The it's identified that the fetus is no longer alive. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And we're not going to be talking today about the causes of pregnancy uh, and uh, and stillbirth or the latest treatments for those people who have experienced these tragedies. Uh, I will say that creating a family has extensive resources on on both of those topics, and you can find that by going to our website, creatingafamily.org. And hovering over infertility, click on A to Z resources and then go to miscarriage. And you will get all of uh, our resources. We have a lot of resources dealing with the causes and treatment for both miscarriage and stillbirth. All right, Lori, can you tell us your experience uh, with miscarriage? What led you to uh, write your book uh, that's uh, uh, After Miscarriage, A Journey to Healing? What led you to write the book and what's been your experience? Well, when I was experiencing miscarriages, I had I had four in less than two years. I desperately searched for uh, a book that I could read and that I would have a shared experience, so I could relate to someone who felt like I did at that time. In fact, I at 36 did not know one person who had ever had a miscarriage. Which leads us to the topic we're we're discussing today. Nobody talks about it. So imagine at 36, I didn't know that. And I was determined when I got through this and, quote, healed, that I would write a book so that someone could just pick up something and say, yes, I felt the same way too. I'm feeling like that right now. And so that was the reason why I did that. And uh, and uh, Reva, you were one of the founders of Naham Comfort. So, what led you to found this organization, which is a support organization for people going through this? So, um, I it's interesting. Just want to make one comment. When you talk about all the terminology, over the years we've learned to refer to early miscarriage, termination, stillbirth. And we refer to the to the couple as their child, their baby, because really at conception it's their child, and even the thought of the conception is their child. Um, so 31 years ago, our firstborn son lived for 12 hours. He passed away of a congenital heart defect, and I too had no uh, support anywhere. There were no books. We didn't talk about it, just like we didn't talk about any crisis situation at that time. And then I uh, also had six miscarriages within 10 years. And like Lori, we, was, there was no place to turn to. Uh, there, was no, there was no computers at the time to Google, so even going to the library, the bookstore, looking for books. And I realized that support was needed and that we didn't talk about it, and that once we started talking about it, we were support for each other. It was interesting. In the early years, people would call me on the phone. We would discuss their their loss, be it the stillbirth or the miscarriage. And when we hung up, they said, if you see me in the supermarket, don't acknowledge that we had this conversation. So it was sort of a catch-22. It was not out in public, and we were not told, given a permission, so to say, to speak about it. And that was one of the reasons in 2008 uh, we founded this organization, at first for women, but quickly knew that we needed to be a support for the women, the men, grandparents, extended family, other children, siblings, and we do community education as well. 
you raised such a good point about our, although you were talking over 30 years ago, I'm not sure it's changed a lot. I still think our society has such discomfort um, talking about miscarriage and and stillbirth. I actually think it's probably more, well, discomfort in talking about both. Um, Ellen, why do you think, uh, why are we as a society so so reticent to acknowledge that either we've had a miscarriage, uh, I think stillbirth is a little different. I think people are, are more uh, open about acknowledging a stillbirth, if only because at that point everyone knows that they're pregnant. But uh, what is it about the, the, this type of loss that makes us hesitant to discuss it? It, it's, it feels like a very private thing in the early stages of pregnancy. Uh, it's been the custom up until very, very recently with early sonograms uh, and publishing them on Facebook, for example, and reveal parties and that sort of thing. It was the custom not to even speak about your pregnancy until you were at least 12 weeks. And so miscarriages, which often happen before that first trimester is up, it was sort of it, it, it was uncomfortable to so, to go to someone and say, "By the way, I was pregnant. By the way." I had a miscarriage, um, especially with the mourning and the sadness often turns people internally anyway. Um, and, and that just fostered this whole uh, um, experience where now you're sad, there's no good reason for it, you can't explain it to people. And as, as time goes by, you feel even stranger saying, oh, by the way, the reason that I was really depressed last month is because my baby died. Um, that's a very, very hard thing for people to say. You erase, it was a great segue into the question I wanted. Another question I wanted to ask, and that is, um, I think you were spot on when you say that people are sharing their pregnancies earlier and earlier. Um, and I think you're right. I think partly it's because of of um, you know, the, the advent of, of sonograms and things like that. And how has that? Uh, and Lori, I'm coming back to you. How has mm-hmm. uh, that affected people's willingness to talk about? Uh, a miscarriage, if they've already at 10 weeks shared a sonogram picture? Uh, I don't think that people are still willing to discuss it. And this happened just recently when people have seen my book, people I know. I openly share because that's the only way that we can help each other. Because when I openly share, people start, well, that was me. But it's a whisper. It's a whisper. Me too. And then they start to open up. Um, I think it's difficult for people uh, to still share early. I think um, for me, I know that the feelings of failure come in as women. We are, we reproduce. And there are a lot of emotions uh, that creep in. And people, I believe women don't talk about it a lot because there's a sense of failure as well. And yeah, I think you're right. I also wonder if it's because people they don't know people if you when you share, if, especially if it's an early miscarriage. And we're going to talk a little about the the distinctions between when a fetal loss or a pregnancy loss occurs. But if it's an early loss, it, what t- people's temptation is so often. Uh, in fact, we we did a. Um, it was kind of a poll on our um, – we have a large uh, online support group, a Facebook group. And everybody out there, we'd love to have you join us, facebook.com slash group slash creating a family. And uh, and the co- most common responses, people immediately – it was if they dis- dismissed the pain and said, well, you can always try again. Or, you know, they're real common. Something was wrong with the baby. You didn't want – that baby would have turned out to have all these problems. So it's whatever. If they're religious, it's God's way of taking care of it. And it's in, in, in that uh, the people are left to feel as if they haven't suffered a loss, that they should be thankful uh, that this has happened. Um, and I think that because of that, people are really hesitant to share. I, I don't, maybe that is changing somewhat. I, I'm not seeing it. Reva, are you? Um, I am seeing a change uh, for the next generation, uh, which, which I'm glad to see. There's definitely been an improvement. I think it's important for whoever is involved, like, like you with this wonderful show and books, that we keep mentioning and we keep uh, talking about it. And the more that we make it okay to talk about, people will 
Also, social media. There's not, you know, a week that goes by, I feel, that somebody in the spotlight uh, a couple weeks ago was Carrie Underwood. She came out with her miscarriages. People are talking about it, and, and they're sort of making it okay. And I see working with... Uh, the next generation, women in their 20s, who are comfortable about talking about pregnancies, are comfortable, you know, they like Ellen had said, that we tell, our, you know, the gender of the baby as early as 12 weeks, as soon as we find out about it. We, we, share, um, we share the news. You know, when, I, when we give our education programs to the, to the young generation and I tell them stories about how, you know, you weren't allowed to say the word pregnant on TV years ago and, and things like that or, or superstitions. If you do this, if you don't do this, uh, don't talk about these things. And, and they don't accept that. I think that the generation is used to uh, dealing with crises, dealing with things as it, as it happens in our world, unfortunately, but has made them more comfortable with with discussing their losses and their babies and their miscarriages. And also because they do know they're pregnant. You know, you had said earlier, years ago, it was sort of like in this period, especially on the fertility journey where you're so tuned into dates and numbers and, and cycles that that we're sharing it and that it's so important to, to uh, um, educate the community at large of what to say. You had mentioned, oh, you're young, oh, you, oh, you know, it's God's will, or you have other children, or you can get pregnant. And we sort of need to educate the, the communities to say, you can't, you know, if you don't know what to say, just say, I'm sorry for your loss at any situation. Mm-hmm. And we, do, we try to encourage the couples that they need to feel and have the choices to be comfortable to speak. But I am, I am happy to say that I think over the last five or six years, there is a change in the society and in the couples being able to express their grief. Yeah, I will say that almost universally, um, I, I know, Lori, you were saying that at 36 you had not known anyone who'd had a miscarriage, but almost universally we hear from people that when they do open up, it's like so many people they know have had a miscarriage, and so many people are, oh, that happened to me too. Or, and, and oftentimes the, the people you are speaking with, it's one of the few times they've talked about it. And so it's a, it's a cathartic experience sometimes to uh, be open. Um, Ellen, what are some reasons why people are not wanting to? I know we just said Reva is hearing more and more people who are talking about it. Um, what are some reasons that you see why people are hesitant to talk about it? Well, I think one of the things that you mentioned is a big factor, the guilt. I must have done something wrong if I wasn't able to to bring a happy baby into the world. That's definitely a factor. Certainly in the case of infertility treatments, the the sadness and the the grief is so bound up in the entire um, traumatic experience of going through fertility treatment. And this, sometimes you it, the focus is, okay, this cycle didn't work, let's move on, without necessarily giving yourselves the time to acknowledge what has happened. And also, I think, um, the education piece for communities, um, so that people don't feel that if they do share, they're going to be barraged with either advice or, mm-hmm. or comments that are meant to be helpful. People don't mean to be they're not trying to be mean. They're they're trying to be helpful, but it turns out that a lot of the things that we typically say, oh, there was something wrong with the baby, uh, you could try again, are not really helpful things because they don't really acknowledge the loss. So you're afraid to say anything, and you're afraid that if you do say something, the stuff you're going to get back is going to be make it worse or be not helpful. And and those are real barriers. You are so right. I mean, I really think that is a barrier. Um, and then the the hard part is it, it's you're still suffering, but nobody else is perceiving it as a loss. Uh, and, and so you're the one, you're having this pain and, and grief, but it's not recognized by our society. Um, although I, I think that somewhat depends on, on when in the pregnancy. But, but uh, So you're left uh, alone with your grief, which makes it all the worse, it feels like. Um, do you see that, Ellen, as well, in, um, in the people that, that uh, you work with through Naha Comfort? 
Yeah, definitely. And it's also it's also in general, even even in losses if if uh, you know someone loses a, a, a parent or a family member, the, the expectation is that we're going to move on quickly. Um and people who are not experiencing the loss don't realize how long the grief process really takes. Um and so 2-3 months down the line, which is really short in terms of the suffering of, of pregnancy loss. Um other people are, are way beyond it. They're like, "Wait a minute! What do you mean you're still sad? What do you mean you're still you're still grieving?" Um, you know, grief is a, is a long time thing. There are definitely steps forward along the way, but it does take a long time, and that's another piece of education that we can do for the community at large. Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, let me just pause for a moment. To I was so thankful that you brought up the discussion of of how miscarriage or is different are the the special impact I guess I would say of miscarriage on those who are in fertility treatment. Um I am not saying it's it's worse necessarily, but I will say that for those who are in treatment, they have uh, been trying for a very long time for this pregnancy. They have no assurance that they're going to be able to get pregnant again, and they have spent a lot of money to get to this point. And it is not a financial thing. On the other hand, finances matter and for some people the ability to even try again is in question because they may not have the 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 money to go through another cycle or might not have any other frozen embryos so uh i think that there is a a special pain for those who experience in uh experience a miscarriage after uh fertility treatment Let me pause for a moment to remind you that you are listening to Creating a Family, and we are talking about coping with miscarriage and stillbirth. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not and would not happen without the generous support of our partners. These are organizations who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, uh, medically accurate information, and one of our partners is Shrafts 2.0. They are a specialty fertility pharmacy that believes pharmacy care can and should be remarkable. All of their employees, and they do mean all of them, I mean literally, from the pharmacist, which you would expect, but all the way down to their shipping clerk, uh, understand and have been trained in the stress of fertility treatment, uh, and they know how to deal with customers with dignity, empathy, and respect. Uh Coming back, I, I I think it is. I wanted to talk about the differences uh, in how people experience loss, and, and and some people there may be no difference as to when in the pregnancy, but uh, is there a difference in when in the pregnancy you lose the baby? If if you lose the baby, uh, uh, you know, a week after you find out you're pregnant, so let's say you lose the baby at a four weeks pregnancy, versus losing the baby at 12 weeks versus uh, a stillbirth where you're losing the baby at 28 weeks. Is there a difference in how people experience that loss? Reva, let me ask that question to you. Um, so that's the question we get, we get a lot uh, from from families who are going through the grief process. And what we've seen is that there is a difference. Uh, there is a difference but it also depends on the family dynamics and the personalities of the couple experiencing the the loss. When we run our support groups, we run them from early miscarriage to the age of one, and and that's one group. And when I was trained through the Resolve to Share program in Wisconsin, that was one of the things that they opened my eyes to, that the planning and the attachment to the baby most of the time occurs before the pregnancy has even occurred, well, you know, when you when you get married or when you find your life partner and you want to start discussing about when, if, how, why we're going to raise a family, uh, that that already happens uh, years before the pregnancy actually occurred. And we live in a society where we children, raising children, are the norm, which we find out is not always so easy to achieve that norm. So I think that what's important is to understand that for these couples, there is a loss and a grief. When they, they're told the news that there's no longer a baby, and it could be four weeks or it could be uh, a stillbirth. And I think we need to recognize to allow this couple 
to to grieve if they want. One of one of our goals is to give the couple and their family and friends and community the choices. Uh, there's no there's no formula, so to say. If this happens at this stage, this is how I'm going to feel. A lot of uh, information and dynamics come into their their feelings, but it's important to recognize that grief is not linear, and they may appear fine at first, but for whatever reason, if they were, you know, if it was early on in the pregnancy, milestones may trigger it again, their due date, uh, finding out they're pregnant and their friends are pregnant with them, their friend's delivery. Uh, a year later, they'll, they'll never forget, you know, I know exactly the dates, the season, what was happening in the news when I had my miscarriages. And I think it's really important to allow the couple to feel they want to feel. And, and that we shouldn't assume. And it could be that the couple, for whatever that reason is, they're not dwelling on the loss and the grief. But I always tell them, the couple, when, when the miscarriage is occurring, to give yourself a couple days off. It's not, and, and we try to teach the doctors, too. It's not like just having a medical procedure. There are, there are emotions tied to it. And that it's okay to feel a loss. And we always say to the couple, we're not going to move past it, but each loss we're going to, on an individual basis, deal with that loss of a child, put it into your life, and to go through it. Mm-hmm. Lori, when you were researching your book, um, what did you find about the the differences about when in the pregnancy the loss occurs? When in the pregnancy the loss occurs, uh, it's how, how people how people cope is what I mean. I'm sorry, that wasn't a particularly articulate oh. question, was it? <laughs> okay, that's okay. So how people so, cope? Yeah, what did I you mean, find? Well, it's you know that's again I I agree it's it's very you know individual. I personally speaking from experience, the losses were the same for me whether I lost the baby at six weeks or I lost the baby at eight and a half weeks or I lost the baby at 11 and a half weeks. For me, the feelings were the same because as um, uh, we heard earlier that you have already, you have created a life for this child. And, and, and of course, yes, before you even maybe found your partner, you've created this life. I created a life for the child. I had dreams and hopes. So my grief, it didn't really change from four weeks to 11 weeks. The grief was the same. And uh, I think you'll find statistically that a lot of people will share that same feeling as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yeah, and I, I, um, I loved what Reva said is that the attachment is, when you are first thinking about creating this baby. And uh, and so you become attached and you start your dreaming at that point. So, um, the, so the pain is there um, because the loss is there. Um, we did get uh, a question. It's actually not a question. It's more of a statement, but I'm going to read it anyway from Bethany. She said, I have experienced two first-term trimester miscarriages. I have No, I'm sorry. Let me read that. I have experienced two first-trimester miscarriages. I don't want to try again. I'm afraid to try again. I'm not even sure what my next step should be. Um, Ellen, this is not really a question, but I'm going to say let's let's use it as a jumping off part, a point. If you were talking with somebody who is um, uh, she she has not mentioned when uh, how long ago these uh, her miscarriages occurred, but she doesn't know her next step. She doesn't even know she wants to try again. Any thoughts on what you might uh, say to somebody like Bethany? The first thing I would do is say, I'm really sorry. This is really a terrible thing that happened to you. Um, and then I would suggest that the number one thing that she has to do is take care of her, and I don't recall if you said she's a husband or a partner, but, but take care of, of her and, and her partner. That's, that's the number one thing to make sure that she's physically okay, that she's managing okay, that she has the support that she needs. Um, for some people, 
getting out of bed in the morning and, and getting dressed is a huge victory. For other people, mm-hmm. they're able to do that right away. Um, it really is very individual. When, you, when, when sort of the normal, everyday annoyances of life start bothering you, that's when you can tell that you're, that you're sort of back to yourself. Um, so that, that's, that's the first thing. Whatever she needs to do for herself, whatever support she needs to rally around herself. And then there will come a point where she feels that, that she, in conjunction with her partner, are able to make um, a choice about how they want to move forward. And certainly in the case of repeated miscarriages, I would, I would counsel um, consulting with medical professionals who have experience with multiple miscarriages. There could be very simple reasons. Um, there could be more complicated reasons, but that, that's always something we would recommend if, if they haven't done that already. And, um, and, that, and that's, that's how people have to proceed, a step at a time. And they, this is very important. Whatever decisions you make today doesn't lock you in. You could change your mind tomorrow or the next day or next month. Allow yourself to feel what you feel and decide what you decide at, every, at any given moment. That is such good advice. You, you don't have to decide. Whatever you decide today is not necessarily you have permission to change. Uh, it makes it easier to make a decision when you don't feel like you're totally bound into whatever it is that, that you have decided. Um, what do you recommend at, at Naham Comfort? Uh, and, and I guess I'll, let me ask you this, Ellen, since you just spoke, I'll ask you this as well. As far as how... Uh, how to seek closure, and, and what I'm specifically trying to get at is advantages and or disadvantages of providing a ceremony surrounding the loss. And for some people, they want to do a funeral or something like a funeral. Um, what are Help us think through, from the standpoint of someone who is experiencing this, what are some of the things they should consider in deciding how best to memorialize this loss? We definitely encourage people to memorialize loss in a way that makes sense for them. I think Reva mentioned the word choices, and that's really, really key. Um, in, in a Jewish environment, some people do um, something that's like a shiva, which is a formalized time when family and friends can come and gather and offer support to the couple. Um, other um, people uh, decide to have other kinds of gatherings. Some people do things... Um, very, very privately. They plant something in their garden. They plant a tree that flowers at that same time every year. Um, we've had people who um, who liked to light candles in their home, so they bought a special candlestick or certain aromatic candles. Some people get, um, especially if they have other children and they have jewelry with charms or names, they, um, they might select an, a charm to represent that child. It's very individual, um, and it what, again, it's what the couple feels makes sense for them. And it's, again, not yeah. something that has to be decided in the, in the days after it happens. This could be at any time. What if the, if the miscarriage happens early and you don't have any anything that, that there's nothing, there's, there, the fetal remains are not something that you have, um, any thoughts on, uh, and, and Lori, I'm going to turn to you, any thoughts on how to uh, memorialize that in, in, that, in that scenario? Well, I don't think that changes whether you have, you know, a, a fetus or not. I mean, um, the, 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 the emotions are still the same. Um, what you would do to memorialize that child is really still the same. Uh, and, again, it's a, it's a private uh, decision. It's a personal choice. Uh, you know, some people will send uh, balloons, um, pink and white balloons up in the air. So it really mm-hmm. depends on uh, what is close to your heart, uh, just like grieving, whatever makes the couple feel more comfortable uh, memorializing their child. It's whatever ceremonial, ceremonially they would like to do together. Um, and again, it, it all is a personal choice. It all comes down to the comfort level of, of the couple. I'll throw out another uh, example that I know of a number of people who have gotten tattoos that represent um, their miscarriage. And one in particular was a tattoo that it was a, a tree, a barren tree, and then she put for each, she had, she had many miscarriages, and for each miscarriage it was a, the, the, a leaf, the outline of a leaf. Uh, and that was her way uh, to bring um, constant reminder 
um, that this of this loss, and it was very uh, helpful. So, various types of tattoos I think can be, uh, if if you're uh, into ink, that's something to consider as well. Is it, There's another uh, uh, something that we uh, suggest for families is that they name the baby, regardless of what oh, stage of development, that they choose a name, and that way they can refer to um, refer to the baby as by that name rather than always saying the baby, and that way um, it, it gives a concreteness to their experience. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was going to ask about that, the, the naming or the not naming. And one of the things that has that has come up is that the name that the parents have, and we didn't receive a question on this, but I have seen this discussed, so I will ask it as if it were a question. And that is uh, if they had picked out a name, but it was a name, a family name or a name um, after a, a father or a junior or whatever, that they didn't want to use that name because they might want to use that for a living child, but feeling disloyal if they change and, and, and then uh, and change and use a different name um, for the baby that died. Any thoughts on that? And Reva, let me ask you that question. And then Ellen, you chime in right afterwards. Um, so yes, that's um, that exactly happened to me exactly when my our firstborn son. We were going to name after my grandfather, who had passed away, and uh, we didn't. We were advised, don't you know? You may use that new name again. But over the years, what I find again, going back to choices, uh, people will tend not to use the name that they had planned uh, for a variety of reasons. And they may never use that name again, though. So what what I see happen is, uh, let's say they were naming it um, after somebody's father. Father's name was John. In their hearts and their minds, even though they may have named their infant that they had that passed away a different name, in their minds, that's what their name is. And we try... To, te- to tell the couple the choice that the stigma, the pressure of the grandparents, let's say, the you know you have to have a name after a certain family member, or you want to name it, a, you know, a junior name, that that sometimes life does not take the path that we thought it was going to take, and that's the whole thing. Why? Uh, what makes this loss, miscarriage, stillbirth unique? Uh, because it's a family. So I think what's important is that the couple should, like Ellen said, instead of referring it to as the baby, should name it uh, something that's meaningful to the family. And we also work with them. We give the couple choices. And, again, it's not that it has to be done immediately. There's nothing that has to be, you know, legally written uh, on a birth certificate or a death certificate, and if you want to put up a stone or a memorial or a piece of jewelry, that could be anything that that the couple chooses. I remember there was a couple who, in utero, they were expecting twin girls as nicknames. They named them Daisy and Sunflower. And uh, what happened was after the after they lost the babies. They decided to paint two beautiful rocks as their headstones with daisies and sunflowers on it. Um, so it's really, it, it's choices, but to, to allow the couple to, to have those choices of what they should name the baby. And again, there is no wrong or right. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, one of the things that's come up a couple of times in our discussion so far, and, and uh, Riva, you just mentioned something, about grandparents, and I think that is something that is not talked about much, and that is the grief of extended family members and, and uh, who have also formed an attachment in their minds. Um, Lori, thoughts on that, uh, on um, on how other members of our family suffer, uh, with, even though they're not the ones who went through the miscarriage. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they suffer. Uh, your friends suffer. Your siblings suffer. Your parents suffer. Your uh, obviously your husband suffers. Your wife suffers. Your partner suffers. Um, and you know, of course, my day was when we we everything was kept inside. Uh, so sometimes you don't hear them uh, vocalize it as often. 
um, but you see the pain. So when we think about uh, dealing with the the woman who has experienced a miscarriage and, and her grief and pain, uh, we also absolutely have to consider uh, everybody involved in this grief because uh, also the grandparents had hopes of a grandchild. Also, mm-hmm. uh, the sister had a hope of being an aunt. Uh, and, and and it goes on from there. So we do have to um, certainly include them in, in the situation. And, um, you know, I one thing uh, I'd like to just mention that we really need to um, – also help these these families through these difficult situations because so many of them do suffer and one thing that I feel is is very important is for counseling um, and to include the couple and as many other family members that need to be involved in the process is very helpful to get not only the couple but also the families through this difficult time. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you 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 mentioned uh, counseling. We're going to we're going to circle back to that. But before we do, Ellen, I wanted to ask you one of the things that I um uh, when reading the Nahum Comfort uh website, you're real clear that you're open for not only the woman but for the husband and for extended family members and I love that. Um and I wanted to talk with you uh, specifically about husbands uh, or partners, male partners. Um or the non-pregnant partner, I will just say it that way, uh, oftentimes that person doesn't feel like, and often it's a he, doesn't feel like that he has the right to grieve because he wasn't pregnant. Um, do you see that? And, and what are specific things you can do to help the the partner um, be able to verbalize and, and work through and own the loss? So absolutely. Um, the the partners often feel um, that, like they need to be the supportive person even though yes. they're grieving and even though it's a terrible loss for them as well. And to a certain extent that is true because the person who was pregnant does have certain physical consequences, but the grief is still there for the partners. Um, it's very important when dealing with a partner situation to remember two things. First of all, every single person grieves differently. Um, so you might have a stereotype that the that the, the the male is going to be you know sort of quieter and not talk about it, not want to talk about it, and the female is going to want to. Sometimes that's true, and sometimes that's not. Um, the other thing that's very important to remember is when we have a loss of someone in our family. Um, there's a primary griever and the partner is sort of the support. Yes, that might be an in-law to them, but it's still there, the supportive person. It isn't as um, tangible a loss for them. Um, and so what that means is in this case of a, of a child loss, both people are grieving and they're grieving differently, which creates tremendous tension often between the couple because they might not be on the same page today or tomorrow or the next day. Somebody might be feeling it one day while the other person is having a day where they're sort of getting back to life, and that's, that's a very difficult dynamic. It's a tremendous stress on marriages um, and any kind of partner situation. One of the things that we advise communities when we do community awareness is for um, friends of the partner to be extra special careful to ask about that person and not the wife or not the person who who had the loss. So if you have a friend that you go to work with every day, ask, how are you doing? How, you know, how are things today? I'm sorry. All the things that you might say to the to the to the woman who, who delivered, say that to the to the partner as well. And make sure you're always asking about how the partner feels. And be be as as much of a good friend as you can and also be aware of the stress that they might be having not only from the loss but because of the stress on the marriage. Yeah, such a uh I think such a good point. And and, and now to circle back to what um uh, Lori mentioned before. I mean, one of the things that people who experience miscarriage are often subtly if if not if not verb if not just specifically told this, there is subtle pressure to get over it. Okay, you know, try again. You've got it next month. As soon as the doctor says you can try again, try again. Um, get over it. Um, you know, it's time now, you know, if, if, if two months later 
you don't want, or three months later, or six months later, you don't want to go to a baby shower. There's the unspoken kind of sigh of, okay, they need to be getting on with life. You know, this is, they're carrying this too far. So let's talk a little about how long the grief process takes. Uh, and we've already talked about it being unique. And in addition to how long it takes, when should we be concerned for somebody who is, in our minds, needing to be getting over it. Lori, let me address that initially to you, and then I'm going to come back to the others because I want to hear everybody's thoughts on this. No, I mean, uh, the grief can, you know, take a, it can take a lifetime. That doesn't mean that you are, you know, in bed for 20, 30 years, right? But the grief has many different stages. Um, you're, you feel uh, isolated, uh, you um very withdrawn, um, and those are normal feelings that can go on for for quite some time. And and uh, I think back to the woman who just made made the statement uh, of of just um, just being afraid. And uh, how long is does that does that process take? And uh, that's why we as we go back and think about um, um, getting help. But grief, yes, I mean I can say that fifteen years later, grief pops back up for me. Um, there's no question about it, and we can't identify when that can occur. Is it grief that paralyzes me? No, not anymore. Did it in the beginning? No question about that, and everybody is individual. So grief can, can crop back up 20 years later. You can find yourself looking at a pregnant person and break down in tears. 20 years later, yes, you can. And we have to be kind to ourselves and understand and accept those feelings that they are real and it is still okay many, many years later. To, to be experiencing this. Reva, thoughts yes. on that of, of when we need to, excuse me, when we need to um, worry about someone, uh, what are some signs that tell us that this person may need to be getting uh, some help because I don't think everybody that experiences a miscarriage needs to be. I think they all need to be supported, but they may not all need therapy. Um, I think we could all benefit from therapy. But uh, <laughs> when should we be concerned, and, and when should be we, uh, as the a support person for somebody who has suffered a loss of miscarriage or stillbirth, should we be encouraging extra help? So I think that. Um, we have to exactly what Lori said. You know, grief—it's not linear. You know that that theory went out a long time ago, and I think you know your family, you know your friends. That's why, you know, when we work with a couple, we sort of look like uh, who's the most sane person in this in this dynamics. Uh, it, it shouldn't be the, the husband and wife of each other because they need sort of either another relative, another friend, a clergy member. The doctor, you know, we've spoken to to many uh, OBs around the country as well. That you know, one of the things that's been suggested is a person that has gone through a loss of a baby should not wait for six weeks to to have a checkup. They should be calling them in three to four weeks, uh, not just for their physical well-being, but to check on their emotional well-being as well. Uh, you know, as as Ellen said, you know, if they're getting out of bed in the morning. Um, after a few weeks, give them time, and they're getting dressed and they're taking a shower, that's okay. Uh, if you see that, that they're really not participating in quote-unquote normal average uh, things to do during the day, they're not eating, they're, they're not functioning independently as an adult, then that's a sign uh, that there could be something more going on. Also, women... Your body doesn't know that you you lost the baby, so your body is still reacting with hormones, with pop, maybe postpartum depression. So that's why it's important to um, have the medical staff and people close to them to be aware and to check in on what's happening. Um, you're right, not everybody needs the same type of therapy, counseling. We do encourage couples at any stage to talk about it at least one time with some with a professional that could be a doctor that could be uh, a therapist many many hospitals have uh, bereavement 
departments that they can talk to. And it's sort of through a conversation we are able to get with our trained facilitators to get a sense of how the couple is doing. But to know that it's okay, you know, my son was born on Passover, which is a very big holiday, and he died on Passover, and we named him Pesach, which is the Hebrew word of Passover. So either, you know, 31 years later, when they start to put the matzahs in the supermarket, I get panic attacks. Not a major panic attack, but that day I'm very solemn, and I recognize that, and the people around me recognize it, and that's okay. But if I wasn't able to get through it, after a time, then we would be concerned. But to get people, it takes time to grieve and just to get a sense to to see how the person is. And it's never wrong to suggest to someone, do they want to go for to talk to somebody? Not necessarily saying counseling or therapy, just to talk to somebody. And many times we'll get calls uh, three months after the loss because that's sort of when everybody has stopped checking in and the people mm-hmm. want to, to have an extra comfort mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense um ellen as far as how long to wait before you try to get pregnant again now from a medical standpoint we want people to go to their uh, doctor and the doctor is going to be advising them so i'm not really talking about from a medical standpoint of when you should begin again i'm talking more from the emotional what are some signs that from that you can that uh, that someone can look internally and say okay now i'm probably healing enough from the emotions that i can begin again because some people have varying i've seen people want to the very next month start again and others who it takes years before they want to to go again uh try again to get pregnant so thoughts on that ellen Sure, absolutely. It's and I would I would say the main guideline is if the couple feels that they're on the same page about wanting to try. That that's really the you know, aside from medical, that's really the single criteria. Um my husband and I um had a stillbirth at thirty seven weeks and we both knew that as soon as the doctor cleared us that we were gonna try right again. Um other people who we spoke to uh, decided that they were done. They weren't going to have. They, they were. They were happy with their family, and they weren't going to try again. That's the decision that they made. And the important thing is that we made it together. Um, you were talking just a moment ago about when's a good sign of when you. How do you know when you might need to to see someone to seek some counseling? If if an extended period of time goes by where the husband and wife are not on the same page, and they're having a lot of difficulty about that, that's another time that they might choose to go and say, okay, we need somebody to help us work through this, work through the issues, so that we can proceed together as a couple. Yeah, good advice on the being on the same page. Uh, yeah, I think that's great. Lori, anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think um, I think you know it's true. I, I, I guess I go back to um, you know any type of support. Um, I think it's important as um, you go through this process that um, it's very helpful to to seek that support um, either from family members or professionally to understand what the long-term uh, goal is in creating a family, um, whether you try again in, in two months, again being on the same page as we heard from both uh, Reva and, and Ellen, or... Um, you know, looking at other options, but I think um, that's definitely something that um, couples should explore either themselves uh, as a couple or or individually um, so they can look at uh, ways to have a family and whether, again, that's trying in in a month or two or looking Mm -hmm. at other options. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, it's okay to say, I I'm, I don't want to uh, uh, go through this loss again, I've, or I don't trust that my body will be able to carry a baby. And to say that there are other ways, I need to explore um, whether my desire is to give birth, or whether my desire is to parent, and whether if my desire is um, to parent, what are some other options I have? So I think that's a um, a very good point that that uh, it can look different for everyone. All right, and I want to end now on a very practical level. If you have someone in your life who has experienced a miscarriage or a stillbirth, how are some ways that you can comfort 
and and offer uh, hope and or not even offering hope. What are some ways that you can support uh, that person from a very practical standpoint? Uh, Ellen, let me start with you. So be a friend, you know, or, or be a, even if you're a family member, be a friend. Uh, act the way a good friend would act if they need help with household chores or errands. Um, if there are other children in the family, you can be helpful with those. Um, any way that you can be a good friend, that, that's what they need the most. Um, and don't give them advice. They really don't unless they ask for it. If they ask for advice, certainly be helpful. But uh, try not to offer too much advice because they're probably getting enough and um, they probably aren't ready for it. Uh, that's what that's what I would suggest. And just you know, if you're in a position, give them a hug. That's that's goes a long mm-hmm. way. Okay, uh, Ellen. Any? I mean, I'm sorry, Breva. Any additional thoughts uh, in addition to being a good friend and doing things that good friends do, uh, and not to give advice? Any other uh, thoughts for the friends uh, and family of someone going through this loss? I think it's to recognize the loss to just say the simple words, I'm sorry, and, you know, sometimes less is more, to understand that you're not going to make it better. There's no way just to tie this up in a box and then tie a bow around it, uh, to say I'm here for you. Uh, not not so many open, not what, what do you need, but instead of saying I'm going to bring you dinner Tuesday night, and if they don't want to... And understand silence. You know, we're very hard. Silence is very hard for us to do as a whole in the world. We, we speak. We're, we're texting. You know, I'm, I'm a people person. I like to talk to people one-on-one. But the creation of something like this today, which 30 years ago I never thought would be possible with your, with your radio show and getting out to so many people is wonderful. But just a text saying, I heard what happened, um, I'm here for you. I'm going to the store. Can I pick up milk for you? You don't even have to talk to me. I'll leave the groceries at the door and ring the bell. Over the years, the, the, the people have reached out to us and have said to us, they never got upset if somebody contacted them too much, but they did were upset when friends and family members didn't acknowledge the loss. And, mm-hmm. and we tell the family and friends, uh, if they get upset, if they get jealous, uh, it's not of you if you're pregnant or if they lash out at you. They're grieving the loss of their baby. And and just a text, phone call, uh, I care, I'm here, and we're so sorry. One of, the, uh, one of our staff members who ha- went through a miscarriage said that uh, the kindest thing anyone did was some good friends who just showed up with some pizza one night shortly after uh, the miscarriage. And uh, they said, we can come in or we won't come in, but here's some pizza. And they, their friends did came in, come in, and they had pizza with them. And she said, just their presence. Um, and I think you're right. That was in part because they were acknowledging. Um, Lori, last word. What would be some specific advice on how to comfort somebody who is going through this a loss of, of a miscarriage or a stillbirth? Well, sometimes it's, um, you know, for, for me, and I have to always speak from personal experience, I had a, a dear friend, and, and what we would do when she was wonderful, we would go a few times a week, and we would go horseback riding. So it was something where I found an outlet and a joy. So if I could speak to the women out there who are just can't find joy, I would mm-hmm. suggest, it's not this is not comforting right now, but I would suggest to find something that you love to do or wanted to do so you can just bring some joy back into your heart because there's so much sadness. But if you can just bring a little teardrop of joy back in there, it will make a bit of a difference in, in your journey. Oh, I, what a perfect note to end on. Find joy. Find something that will give you joy. And you may have to look a while um, because you're in pain. But it's okay to do something for yourself that brings you joy. And not only is it okay, but it's a it's a blessing. What a a what a beautiful sentiment to end on. Um, let me remind people that this show and all of our resources would not happen without the generous support of our partners. 
Here's another wonderful partner, Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are one of the largest fertility practices in the state of New York and actually one of the biggest in the country. By combining the latest innovations in reproductive science with compassionate and customized treatment plans, RMA of New York is able to provide the best possible care. Thank you so much for being with us today to talk about the topics of of um, miscarriage, pregnancy loss, stillbirth, whatever we want to call it. Lori Leo, author of After Miscarriage, A Journey to Healing, Reva Judas, and Ellen Krishner with the support group Naham Comfort. If you would like more information or to buy Lori's book, you can do it at her, well, you can do it. Any, any independent bookseller would have it. Any good one does. And if not, of course, it's on Amazon. Or you can go to her website, LoriLeoAuthor.com. To get more information about Nahaim Comfort, you can go to their website, which is NahaimComfort.com. That's N-E-C-H-A-M-A-C-O-M-F-O-R-T. It's funny, I was all of a sudden struggling to, <laughs> to spell it, the word comfort, which is not the hard part there. Uh, but you can go to uh, that website. They have a lot of resources there for families. So it's N-E-C-H-A-M-A, then the word comfort.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top-load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels, just $4.78 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with spring Black Friday savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Gas dry extra. See store for details valid through April 17th. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels, just $4.78 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with spring Black Friday savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Gas dry extra. See store for details valid through April 17th.